We are continuing in our series in the book of Isaiah. We're about a third of the way through, and I'm not sure about you, but I've been greatly helped by considering this portion of Holy Scripture together as a church. We're going to be in Isaiah 21. It's on page 582 in the Pew Bibles, if that's what you're using. And as is customary in the life of this church, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Just at the outset, I just note that this is one chapter with three oracles. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. As whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam. Lay siege, O Media. All the sighing she has cost, I bring to an end. Therefore, my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. They prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Arise, O princes. Oil the shield. For thus the Lord said to me, Go, set a watchman, let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. O my threshed and winnowed one, what I had heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. The oracle concerning Duma. What is calling to me from Seir? Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? The watchman says, morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. The oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets in Arabia, you will lodge, O caravans of Dedanites. Do the thirsty bring water, meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Temar. For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. For thus the Lord said to me, Within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. And the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few for the Lord the God of Israel has spoken. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated as we seek the Lord in prayer. 
Father, we need you. Our hearts are so fickle. Our hearts are prone to anxieties and fears and doubts. Our, our flesh is prone to sin and to temptation. Um, we are so easily enamored by the things of this world. Um, and so we need you by your spirit to come and to remind us of the goodness of your ways. And we need your spirit to come and to help us to understand what your word says and means. And we need mostly your spirit to help us to believe your word at the core of our beings. And so we pray and we ask, even in these moments, that you would illuminate our minds and that you would work in our hearts and that that would translate into the way that we live our lives in this word, quorum Deo, in the presence of God. And so, Father, would you be with us as a church this morning? Would you help us? Would you aid us? Would you guide us? And would your spirit sanctify us according to your word? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Darkness. Some of us prefer the darkness, and I don't mean that in a spiritual sense. I just mean that some of us would have probably rather slept in this morning with covers over our heads and lights off. Others of us are night owls. I hate going to bed, preferring to burn the midnight candle rather than wake up at the crack of dawn. And, and still others of us love to go out, especially in the summer as it is now, on a, summer, on a summer's night for a walk or a stroll. And then there are others of us who hate the darkness, who hate the lack of light, and thought of going for a stroll under the moonlit sky is terrifying for you. And even the bravest of us can identify with that a little bit. Night is scarier than the day, and darkness is more overwhelming than the light. And if we take physical light and physical darkness and then begin to talk about moral and spiritual darkness, I think that for all of us, the anxiety can rise. The feeling of being overwhelmed increases. And I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, nor do I have the ability to see behind the scenes of our culture and society to know exactly what is happening, but I do know that darkness is pervasive across our nation. The darkness is upon our land, and the sun seems to keep setting but not rising. Our culture is post-Christian. And the beliefs and the morality which once held together the fabric of this nation are slowly but surely, perhaps quickly, disintegrating before our very eyes. It's not to mention the general instability in our culture right now with rising inflation, with a downturn in the economy, with division on issues of race, wokeness, and how to view the government and things like this. We are in an ever-darkening society. And that can be a scary thing. And that can be an overwhelming thing. And what Isaiah does for us in our passage is that he provides us with three oracles to help us to grasp the direction of history and what our response should be as the covenant people. In an ever-darkening world, Isaiah provides us with three oracles to help us to grasp the direction of history and how we should respond as the covenant people. Three oracles, three points, and so let's get, begin. If you're taking notes, the first point is the terrifying vision of the destruction of a nation, and with this we find in verses 1 through 10, the terrifying vision of the destruction 
of a nation. Now, one of the principles that we have to keep in mind with prophetic literature, with prophecy, is that they are reusable, okay? Prophecy is green or environmentally friendly in that sense. They are reusable. A prophecy will have a historical fulfillment, okay? But then often, those same prophecies are picked up by later prophets or by later teachers of the Bible and be applied to their specific context. If you think with me for a moment about the about the object of a wedding band, okay, if you're married, you're probably wearing a wedding band, and the wedding band is meant to uh, be a gift from one spouse to another, and it's also meant to symbolize something in the context of that event. The wedding band uh, represents the union between a man and a woman, and I think because the ring is circular and it never ends, it's meant to represent the eternal nature of that love bond between the man and the woman. Now, some of you... Uh, might be wearing a wedding band right now, and it might have belonged to, let's say, a relative of yours, let's say a grandmother. Now, your grandmother probably would have been married 40, 50 years prior to when you were married, Um, but nonetheless, it was the same ring, it had the same meaning, but it was in a different context. And so it is with the prophets. What the prophets say and what the prophets do in their writings, it will be the same words, It will have the same meaning, but it can be applied to a multiplicity of contexts, both historically in Bible times and in our day and age, as we will see. So the truths of this passage are rooted in historical events. But the meaning and the significance of this passage have an enduring reality, have an enduring sort of application for us as God's people, even if we don't find ourselves in the exact same historical situation. That's important for us to keep in mind because sometimes, because we're removed from this prophecy by probably 2,700 years, it's hard for us to pinpoint exactly what Isaiah was talking about in terms of the specifics. It's hard to know exactly what would have been in the newspapers at the time that Isaiah was writing. But the meaning and the application for God's people is the same throughout the ages, including in 2022. And so that's important for us to keep in mind. I say all of that to help us to understand prophecy, but also because I'm going to take a particular interpretation within this passage and not provide sort of the alternating views because that would get confusing. Um, and so we're just going to kind of walk through the text uh, with one interpretation, but either way, with either interpretation, whether you take this to be uh, you know, a reference to Assyria or to Babylon or whoever it might be, the, the point of the passage, I think, remains largely similar, if not the exact same. So with that, let's begin. Isaiah has this oracle, and it concerns the wilderness of the sea. And, and, and there are these strong winds that come up, it says, from the land of terror, it is ominous and seemingly sudden, this vision that Isaiah has. And, and, and this vision, as we will see, it's, it's not pretty. It's harsh. It's severe. It's difficult for Isaiah to grasp and to process. One world power betrays its friends, and it destroys all who would get in their way, like a ravenous lion preying on its evening meal. And so Babylon calls out to its allies, Elam and Media, come to our aid. Go up and conquer our foe. 
Surround their city walls and we will put an end to the mighty Assyria. But all of that is a pipe dream, which is what Isaiah is going to see. It is an illusion on the part of Babylon, which is what Isaiah comes to realize. Over the course of this vision, Isaiah will come to realize that the pompous balloon of Babylon will in fact be popped. Now, that's why he has this intense and severe response in verses 3 and 4. Last night, I had a dream. I told you I'm not a prophet, um, so I'm not saying that this has any revelatory significance for us, but I had a dream, and uh, I had a dream that I was preaching um, at uh, a, a church of a pastor that I know, and, uh, and I was in a pickle, because as I was going to, there to preach, I realized two things. One is that um, some of the interpretations that I took in that particular text would have actually gone contrary to what that pastor and that church would have sort of held to. So that was kind of anxious point number one. Anxious point number two was that as I was in the pulpit, I realized that my notes, um, half of it was there and then the other half was blank because I had printed out on black and white copy or something like that. And half my notes came out blank. And so in the, in, in the way that that service was set up, there was the reading of scripture and then there was a time in between and then I would have preached. And so in between... Uh, I was trying to print my sermon notes, and I think I had made my way to the pastor's house, tried to print my notes. I got back to the church, but I was late, and he had to fill in for me while I was gone. It was a mess. <laughs> it was a preacher's nightmare. Now, in that illustration, I was the one making the mess, but we'll see that Isaiah, too, has a preacher's nightmare. Not because he had done anything wrong, not because he was making a mess, but because what he saw was absolutely devastating and overwhelming. He says that he is like a woman in labor. He's overwhelmed by distress. And perhaps you can empathize with this just ever so slightly if you have had a panic attack or an anxiety attack. He's just saying that my emotions are out of control. I'm absolutely overwhelmed by what I see and what it signifies. I am undone. He's so overwhelmed that the text says, whether metaphorically or literally, that he can't hear and he can't see. By the way, senses which are oh so important, seeing and hearing if you want to be a musician and also if you want to be a prophet. Those senses are oh so important for Isaiah's role as the prophet. And he's saying, I can't even hear, I can't even see. This vision is so overwhelming. And he's absolutely horrified by the vision Isaiah is. So the question that we should be asking is, what in the world is happening? Why would Isaiah be upset about the destruction of Babylon? I thought in chapter 13, chapter 14, the verses that Matt preached, Israel was supposed to taunt Babylon. And they were supposed to joyfully sing about the destruction of Babylon as a people. What's happening here? What is going on? I think there are two things happening here. First, in verses 3 and 4, I think that we see the humanity of Isaiah. We, we, we see that Isaiah is coming to realize the destruction that is coming upon the people of Babylon. Let me explain what I mean by this. Many commentators take this to be a reference, the historical setting to be the destruction of Babylon in 689 at the hands of their Syrian king Sennacherib. 
And we have some of the records of Sennacherib um, retelling the victories that he would have had around this period and around this time. And in those records, we are told that buildings and walls of the cities were demolished. The Babylonian gods were taken and smashed by the Assyrian people. And And the city was filled with corpses. As a final gesture, Sennacherib would release huge volumes of water over the ruins. And I think that Isaiah understood that the destruction of Babylon as a world power would mean the destruction of the women and the children of Babylon. Families would be ripped apart. An entire nation would be war-torn. And that undid Isaiah's heart. The second and more significant reason, though, that I think that Isaiah was in despair was because his hopes were dashed. Because the nation of Israel had allied with Babylon. Their hope and security and protection was melting before Isaiah's eyes as he saw this vision. Defeat for Babylon would mean defeat for Judah. Or would it? Hang on to that question. Returning to our text, verse 5 seems to be a return to the Babylonians. While Isaiah is absolutely destroyed by the vision, the people of Babylon seem to be going about their day as if it were normal times. Without a care in the world, eating and drinking. Until there is a bit of urgency, because it says in verse 5, Arise, O princes, oil the shield. And there seems to be, at the end of that, an awareness that the invaders and the enemy is coming. So what a mess. Darkness is coming and Babylon is largely unawares. The prophet is undone and cannot hear or speak. And so the question for Isaiah, the question for us, is what in the world do we need in such a moment? What do we need in this hour of crisis? What do we need in this darkening hour? We need a watchman, not a man who wears a watch, but someone who climbs the tower of a city wall in order to watch for enemy intruders and attackers. We've already spoken of a wedding. Let me just say this very briefly, that in a wedding, obviously, there's lots of setup and there's lots of planning that goes into it, and the climax of, the, of, of all of it is the wedding day particularly the ceremony in which the husband and the wife are wed and they say their I do's and they're pronounced husband and wife. And our entire passage, all of it, I think, is planning and setup. And verse 9 is the wedding. Verse 9 is where the passage is moving towards. Verse 9 is the climax. That's where we're headed. But before we do, we have some planning and setup to do, so let's keep doing that. The watchman is given instructions. He's saying, hey, watchman, listen, this is what you need to watch out for. This is the sign, okay? Riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels. And when you see this sign, what you need to do, watchman, is listen diligently, very diligently. Listen carefully. So the watchman does exactly this. He climbs the ladder of the city wall and positions himself in the tower and with a hawk's eye, he watches for the sign. He is at his post day and night. He is stationed there, discharging his duty as a faithful soldier. 
And I think here there's a sense of duty on the part of the watchman. There is a sense of vigilance on the part of the watchman. And there is a sense of wanting to get the message right on the part of the watchman. And remember who it is who stationed the watchman there. In this darkening hour, in this hour of crisis, the one who places the watchman in the tower is the Lord God of Israel. And so for God's people, when they find themselves in a darkening world, what they need is a word from Yahweh. And perhaps you're here today, and your life is in shambles. Your life is in ruins, or your relationships are just wrecked and a mess. Or maybe you're not quite in that situation, but you're anxious about the state of the world. You're fearful of where our society is headed, and you're overwhelmed by the increasing darkness of our land. What you need, and what I need, is a word from the watchman. A word that will clarify the direction of history, and a word that will instruct us in how we are to respond as God's covenant people. Oh, because did I forget to tell you that this oracle was written for you? Look with me to verse 10. Oh, threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. You may have thought that this oracle was written to Babylon. No, it was written about Babylon, but it was written to Israel. This word is is primarily not for our unbelieving family and friends and neighbors, but rather it is for us as the covenant people of God. This this word is given to the covenant nation Israel and is given to us, the covenant people, the church. Keep that in mind as we move through the passage. I told you that we were heading to the wedding day. Let's go there to verse 9. It's not going to feel like a wedding day, but it's the climax of our passage. Verse 9, and behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. If you've moved into a new home in the last year or two, I'm sure that when your friends, family, and neighbors, or whoever it is that come over, you give them a house tour. You know, you show them the main floor, you show them the bedrooms, and they show them the basement, and you know, you kind of say, okay, what you did and what was from the previous owners, and you give them a house tour. Now, um, the, the king of Babylon, Merodach Baladan, visits King Hezekiah of Judah, and King, king Judah gives King Merodach Baladan from Babylon a house tour. <laughs> In Isaiah 39, it's recorded for us that when the Babylonian king visits Jerusalem, King Hezekiah gives the Babylonian king a tour of his house and a tour of the storehouses of Israel. And so he shows the king of Babylon all the treasures of Judah. And we have to remember then that what was happening historically, what was happening at the time, is that Judah was buddy-buddies with Babylon. They were being tempted towards, and perhaps they had given into aligning themselves with Babylon as a world power. I know that all of you are struggling with the temptation of aligning yourself with Babylon as a political power this morning. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously, you're not. 
but but I, none of us are tempted by that, but all of us are tempted by aligning ourselves with spiritual Babylon. All of us are tempted to find a home in spiritual Babylon. You see, because while Babylon was a historic nation, it would also become a symbol for a way of life throughout the biblical revelation. It would become a metaphor for a lifestyle that has no place for the true and living God. And, and if you were a little bit lost with the historical details up until now, listen to this because this is very applicational. This is very relevant for you and for me today. All of us are tempted by a life that is characterized by a love for pleasure more than a love for God. A life that is characterized by materialism rather than godliness. A life that is characterized by self-sufficiency rather than dependence upon God. A life that is full of immorality and opulence and luxury and a love for those things. A life that is devoted to climbing the ranks and improving one's status. A life that is boastful of one's own abilities and one's own accomplishments. A life that is willing to run roughshod over others to get ahead. A life that is ruthless and godless. And perhaps those exact phrases don't describe you. But who isn't attracted to more money? and more things at times? Who isn't allured by sexual temptations? Who isn't drawn in even slightly to luxury and opulence and the prestige that comes with it? Who isn't prone to forget God and make life all about number one, M-E? And all of this, by the way, it's pretty on the outside. It's absolutely filthy and disgusting on the inside. What Isaiah wants you to know, and what John wants you to know as he picks up on this language in the book of Revelation, which we will turn to at the end of our sermon, this is what they want you to know, is that the worldliness we are tempted to embrace, that the pleasures we are tempted to pursue, that the things we are tempted to rely on for our security, that the things that we look to to soothe our souls, all of them, every last one of them, is going to pass away. All of them, like Babylon, will be destroyed in judgment because all of them, in a sense, are Babylon. 1 John 2, 15 and 17 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. History is headed somewhere, and that needs to inform the way that you live your life today. We are not on a cosmic hamster wheel, net merely going around and round in aimless circles, and therefore the, the consequences of our actions are negligible. No, history is headed somewhere. History is headed for the destruction of Babylon. God will see to it that Babylon is judged in history, throughout history, and at the end of history. And the question for you is, will you side with God or with Babylon? Choose this day whom you will serve. Do not place your hope in a system that cannot save. Do not look for security in things that will be swept away in the judgment. And instead, look to Christ, the only light in a dark world, 
the only savior of the world, the only hope in a hopeless age, and the only refuge for coming destruction. Look to Christ. Three oracles, three points. We'll get through the the next two points much more quickly. The terrifying vision of the destruction of a nation and then the desperate cry of the foreigner for relief. The desperate cry of the foreigner for relief. And I love the way that the prophets and the biblical writers just build illustrations into their sermons or into their teaching, into their writing. And so there is this man who comes from um, Duma, or sorry, who's calling, the, the oracle concerns Duma, which is a city in Edom, so this is an oracle concerning Edom, and there is this lone man who cries out from Seir, which would have been a, a mountain uh, in Edom, and he cries out to Isaiah the watchman from Mount Seir, and he asks a question. He basically asks, what time is it? What time is it? What time of the night is it, Isaiah? Are we at dusk with an entire night ahead of us, or are we at dawn moments before the sunrise? What time is it, Isaiah? Interestingly, this foreigner recognizes that if anyone will have an answer to interpret the times, it is the prophet of God. And though Edom was not a major player in world affairs at the time, the shifting of world powers would have affected them just the same. And the words of the watchman, surprisingly, are not extremely hopeful. It's not extremely satisfying. He says, hey, listen, morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. Morning will come, but night will return. There may be relief, but it is only temporary. But come back again. Inquire again. Perhaps then I will have a different answer. So whether you're in the midst of a national crisis with enemy invaders on your doorstep or you're living in a fairly stable political context, it can feel that the night is long. It can feel that we are in an endless cycle like a hamster on a running wheel going through the motions of life but getting nowhere. And what this oracle teaches the Edomite and the Israelite, what this oracle teaches the non-Christian and the Christian is that God, in fact, does have a plan, that he is carrying history forward and towards its goal. And yes, God will act in dramatic and obvious ways at times, but in other periods, he allows long tracks of time to pass when nothing seems to be happening, when the dark night seems to be long and never ending. And the word for this man And the word for us in those moments is simple. Wait. Be patient. Give it time. Keep asking. Keep coming back for an answer. God will act in due time. Light is at the end of the tunnel, but the tunnel is long. And so Christian... In a world where it just seems like we are in an endless, never-ending cycle that just repeats itself over and over again, and history is not linear, it's actually not headed anywhere, and so it's just sort of like a, a Christianized version of history, of, the, of uh, being reincarnated. We're just kind of in an endless cycle that never sort of is headed anywhere. When we're tempted to believe that, Christian, are you willing to wait upon God? 
Christian, are you willing to trust his sovereignty when the world seems to be out of control? And Christian, are you willing to wait for the sunrise even when the night seems oh so long? Just a quick word, do know, Christian, that we are in a better position than this inquirer was. Because since the time that Isaiah wrote and since the time that this man called out to Isaiah from Mount Seir, the pages of the history book have turned. And we are closer to the sunrise than when these words were spoken because of the passing of time, but also because of the coming of Christ, who by his life, death, and resurrection defeated the darkness, who overcame the world, and who set the timer for the expiration of this godless age. We read about that from 1 John 2. Three oracles, three points. The terrifying vision of the destruction of a nation, the desperate cry of the foreigner for relief, and the empty refuge of a pagan nation in verses 13 through 17. Isaiah now turns his attention to Arabia. And Tema or Tima was an oasis city and a caravan center. Um, and so it would have been a natural place for refugees to flee. I'm not sure if we have these in Canada. I know that they have them in the States where um, there are these refugee cities. And so many refuge, refugees would flee to these particular cities because they have programs and such as this. And the refugees are fleeing to certain locations within Arabia to be received by the people there. And there were refugees and fugitives. These men and these women and these children were fleeing and running because of the tumult of war. They are running from swords and from the bow and from the press of battle. They are running for their lives because their land has become war-torn. And these refugees find refuge in Arabia. They are running for their lives because their land has become ravaged. Now, we could take this to be a beautiful picture of humanitarian aid. We could take this to be a, a picture of uh, people with plenty helping people in need. And certainly there's nothing wrong with, say, the Canadian government opening, um, you know, opening up opportunities for refugees to come in so that they can receive the aid and the help that they need. But that's really not the point of this, of this oracle. Because as soon as the refugees arrive in Arabia, or even, they might even be traveling within the nation itself, but as soon as the refugees find refuge, Isaiah pulls the rug out from under Arabia and her refugees. Isaiah pops the bubble of this seemingly charitable act. Because Isaiah ends this oracle by doing the oh-so-inconvenient thing of predicting the future, that he says that within the length of a seasonal worker's contract, that within the amount of time that it takes your child to go from grade one to grade two, the glory of Kedar will come to an end. The soldiers and the army of Kedar will be decimated. And by the way, Kedar is a region in the northern part of Arabia. So what is the lesson and what is the, what is the lesson for, what, for Israel and what is the lesson for us? It is this. That the Gentile nations cannot help themselves and they cannot help one another. The pagan nations have no recourse and they have no hope. These refugees and fugitives were running for help because their homes were destroyed and their land was ravaged and they found shelter and sustenance in Arabia. But little did they know that the destruction, that the destruction and ravaging that they originally caused them to run will be upon their protectors in less than a year's time. If the refugees want help, 
If Arabia wants help, if the Gentiles want help, if you want help here this morning, you must not look to yourselves. And you must not look to other people. You must not look to the nations. You must not look to political parties. You must not look to man-made solutions to our problems, but we must look to the God of Israel who is sovereign over history, who reigns over the nations, who is carrying history forward according to his plan and purpose, who is going to bring about the fall of Babylon and all who identify with her. Will you look today to the God of Israel? Will you abandon all confidence in yourself? Will you abandon all confidence in political parties and leaders? Will you abandon all confidence in the securities of this world, like a fat wallet or a successful career? Will you abandon all confidence in the goodness and the ingenuity of the human race? And will you look today to the God of Israel for life and breath and everything? Three oracles Three points, telling us and informing us about the direction of history and what our response should be as the people of God. To close, let me pick up on John's writing. We turn to the book of Revelation. You can turn there with me in your Bibles if you'd like. Otherwise, you can just listen. Revelation 18, and we see this principle of the reusability of prophetic writings in use. Let me read Revelation 18, verses 1 through 8. And remember that John was writing to his audience who would have also been living in an anti-Christian, pagan, um, darkening world. And he writes to the Christians of the first century in order to give them hope and in order to give them encouragement and in order to give them stability and in order to give them perspective. And in order to do so, part of what he does is that he picks up on Isaiah 21. Revelation 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you partake in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities." Pay her back as she herself has paid others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. This is God's word from Revelation 18, reflecting on, again, God's word in Isaiah 21. History is headed somewhere. 
and history is headed towards the destruction of Babylon. And remember that Babylon was not just a historic entity, but it is a representation of all that is ungodly and anti-God in this age and in this world. And what we must do as the covenant people is that we must refuse to love and bow the knee to Babylon. And we must come out of the midst of Babylon so that we can be faithful to our God, who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, it instructs us. And thank you that you, out of love for us, and, uh, teach us. And sometimes your word is uh, warm and happy, and then other times it's more sober-minded and serious. And I pray that we, as your people, would be willing to receive both. That we have not in our minds a God of our own making, but that we worship you as you have revealed yourself to us. God, thank you for loving us in Jesus. And thank you for loving us enough to confront our sin and to tell us and to warn us of coming judgment. I pray, I plead with you, that you'd help us to live accordingly, even today and this week. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.